0: the same units as what we had this morning in chapter three at the end of chapter three before christ then there's kind of a hinge part and then there's being in christ and for this evening text at the very end we're going to get hey if you are in christ what are you going to do about it what how are you going to live and so we're going to end with that um, great thought of every relationship has responsibility what will you do with that responsibility of being in christ So Paul just seems to repeat himself over and over and over again, doesn't he? He's just driving home the point over and over and over, and he uses different illustrations, and it's very exciting. I do think, as the more I've studied Galatians in the past six months, I really think this is Paul's approach typically in all of the synagogues. When he went into the synagogue and he spoke about the coming of the Messiah and the law, he, I think he, that's what got him kicked out of all these synagogues talking about the Mosaic law like that. And even in Acts 21, we see the response of the Jerusalem apostles as he comes back and, and they're like, hey, Paul, everybody's telling us that you're telling people to forsake the law of Moses. Well, I think the book of Galatians is what he had been teaching over and over and over again, but we get it here in written form by the Holy Spirit. What a blessing. Let's pray, and we'll get into our text. Scripture. Well, let me read the text and then pray. I I think just to read it and then we'll we'll see the the theme, the same themes this morning that we had up here. Chapter 4 of Galatians, the Word of God says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, We're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son... Then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Let's pray. Father, as again we look at our relationship to Christ, the fact that at one time we were under the law, cursed, separated, headed straight for a torment in the lake of fire, but now we are sons of God. We are joint heirs with Christ, and I pray we would understand our position in Christ, and then our life in Christ, the freedom and the liberty that we have to finally please you, our master. Father, we don't want to go back under the law. We don't want to be put ourselves under bondage again where sin will abound. We want to live for Jesus Christ in holiness and with great joy. So help us to understand the text and the setting in which it is placed. And please, Father, use these truths to strengthen our faith and to cause us to walk in righteousness. For the name and the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. My three points, again, you'll see in chapter four, verses one, two, and three, things that are happened with us when we're under the law, before we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But then God sent his son, and so now we have our faith in Jesus Christ, and so we'll see the next part. What is our life in Christ like? Well, the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts, and we cry out, Abba, Father. Doesn't it sound a lot like this morning's message? And then at the very end, but then... Why would we go back and serve those same beggarly elements if we're in Christ and we have all this great, the great relationship of sonship to him? And so he repeats himself over and over and over. And it sounds like I do as well, but I'm just reading the text. Now, remember, there is a problem with the law of God, the law of God. Actually, there's no problem with the law of God. The problem is with us. God's law is pure and holy and perfect. Perfect. What's wrong is us. We can't keep the law. So earlier in Galatians 3, we saw cursed is everyone who does not keep all of the things that are written in the name of the book, to do all of them all of the time. There's a curse for anybody under the law, which is all mankind. Until you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are considered under the law. And that brings about a curse because not one person in this room has ever been perfectly holy according to God's standards. We have all lied, stolen. We have all murdered in our thoughts, as we saw in the book of Matthew this morning. Every single of us, one of us stand guilty before God. And this morning's text, the law, of God plays a, the law of God plays a role in our life in two ways, just for review. Remember, it's a prison guard. The law is a prison guard that puts everybody inside the prison. Every man, woman, boy, and girl on planet Earth are locked up in the prison because we have to be perfect to have a relationship with God, but we're not It's evident that everybody has sinned and fallen short of the God's glory. And so there's no way of escape out of this prison until we met Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross and our sins were paid in full, anyone who believes in him gets out of the prison. And we are no longer under the law, but we're now under grace. So if somebody is here tonight and they are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith alone, you are, you are imprisoned by the law, and the law can only condemn, find you guilty, and ultimately kill you. You are on death row, literally. It's like you're standing over the mouth of hell, the burning, fiery pit, and you're standing on a rotten plank, and it's only a matter of time before you break through and plunge straight to that pit of hell. That's how serious it is for the 50 million people that are going to die on this planet this year, 4,275 in the next 45 minutes are going to die, and I would guess the majority, are on that solitary plank that will send them right to hell. But Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. That's what he's done. So the, the law prisons us, condemns us, finds us guilty. Jesus sets us free. So why would we ever go back to the law? Why would we ever choose to go back to prison? It's foolish. But the second the second illustration was the pedagogos. Remember that? The pedagogos is the hired slave that would take a six to 16 year old boy from the parents and walk them to school and then after school walk them home again but the whole time he had a rod in his hand and any time the child stepped out of bounds boom discipline discipline harsh punishment and that's what the law does all it does is harsh punishment finds me guilty drive down the street what do i do it says 30 what do i do 35 i'm guilty says 50 i drive 52 what am i guilty guilty Guilty, guilty, guilty. And that's the pedagogos. Finds every single one of us absolutely guilty and sinful in the eyes of God. But Jesus, right? Jesus has redeemed us from the curse. So now, using the same thought that we're just covering there with the pedagogos and the young child in the house, Paul says this in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. So let me set for you the thought of the culture. Because to understand this, we have to get out of modern America, 2016, and put ourselves back into the biblical days. The Jewish people had a clear definition as to when a boy became a man. It was crystal clear. What was it? 12th birthday. The first Sabbath after the boy's 12th birthday, the dad would take his son and bring him down to the synagogue and there, they would have. he would become bar mitzvah. He wouldn't have a bar mitzvah, although we do have those now. Bar mitzvah, bar means son. Mitzvah means commandment. Did you know that? It means bar mitzvah, the Jewish celebration for a boy who turns 12. They still have it today. It means son of the commandment. It was at that time in the Jewish culture, as it is today, that the boy, until he was 12, was always under the father's rule. The father... Kept over him, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. But at 12 years old, and then on that first Sabbath, he became a son of the commandment. He was out from under his father, and he was responsible for following the law. He was responsible for pleasing God and doing those things which were acceptable to God. Literally, he became a man at that time. Now, the Greeks had something totally different. The Greeks had something that was at 18 So, when a Greek boy turned 18 is when he became a man, not at age 12, but at 18. And there was a special ceremony. You got to like this one. When the boy turned 18, the mom and dad would take the old robe off of youth and give him another robe, a robe of an adult. And then they would cut off his long hair. Yeah, he must have grown some long hair in those teen years. They cut off his long hair and they offered it. (laughs) They did. There you go. It's the day. They would cut off the long hair of the boy and they would offer that to the god Apollo. And then the boy was considered a man. He was brought down to the marketplace, introduced to the forum, and he was introduced to public life as a young adult. It was very clearly defined. The Romans. Not so clear. But there was a clear thing. But it wasn't a definite age like 12 or 18. It was any time that the boy was between 14 and 17. And what they would do is, during those ages of 14 to 17, the father chose the time. Depending on his son, the father would choose his time. And uh, let me just read this to you. There was a time that took place... The father may have had discretion in setting this time. um, For boys and girls, they would take their favorite toys. Maybe the girls would have their dolls. The boys would have their toys. They'd bring those childish things down, and they would burn them and offer them to the gods. And they would literally say, I am done with childish things. I'm now becoming an adult kind of makes you think of 1 Corinthians 13. Remember when Paul said, I'm putting away childish things. Now I'm I'm a man now. He says that at the end of... I think that's what he was talking about. There comes a time when we get out of immaturity and we become a grown adult. There's a time to stop being children in your faith and grow up. Get real with Jesus. Stop playing games. You're not playing toys. This is real. This is reality. Life and death things are in our culture and in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, so this, this um, boy would be given toga virilis. He would be given a, a, a clothing or a cloak of virility, saying that now, finally, he is a man. But again, the father is the one that chose that time. I think this is what Paul is thinking of in chapter 4. Here's how he says it. Now I say that the heir, so the heir is the son of the master, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave though he is master of all. So you have an infant boy. He's going to be your heir. He's going to own everything. He'll own the house, the property, all the possessions. But as long as he is an infant, as long as he is a child and he has not reached maturity or adulthood, even though he is the son and he owns everything by right, he doesn't own it by fact. He is no better off than a slave, right? The son is still acting like a slave because he has no rights, He has no privileges of full sonship. He's in those childish age when he's playing with the toys. So Paul says, people who are under the law are like that. If you're under the law, if you've placed yourself under the law rather than under grace, you are like a child. You don't have all the rights and privileges of full adulthood. You are simply under the curse of the law, playing with toys, even though you are the master of all things. Verse 2 goes on to state further both this little child who is not a full grown age yet he's under guardians and stewards two more words to be like a male disciplined person somebody involved as a steward somebody who watches over the children to make sure that they stay in line just simply discipline discipline correction restraint okay and the law is like that the law for the immature for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ binds them controls them and we know sin abounds in that in that uh In that environment. So, this child is under guardians and stewards. He's no different than a slave. Here it is, until the time appointed by the Father. At which point, he takes off his old filthy rags of of righteousness and he's given the robe of adulthood. Doesn't it remind you of our relationship with Christ? We take off our rags of self righteousness, all of our religion and our rituals and all of our good works. They don't help us, they don't benefit us, they don't bring us into favor with God. We take those off and we receive. Robes of righteousness by the master himself, by Jesus. So verse 3, even so we, when we were children, you know, here we we're not of full-grown age, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, the elements of the world, it's the idea of, I think, the elementary principles of religion. Do this, don't do this. If you do this, God will like you. If you don't do this, God won't like you. And so we play that game all the time, right? People travel thousands of miles to go to Israel. They go to Jerusalem, and where do they go? The Wailing Wall. And they stand there, and they pray to a wall, and they think, if I do this, and I put a piece of paper in the cracks of the wall, somehow God will hear me and answer me, and somehow he'll like me. That's elements of the world. That is, if I do this, God will like me. If I go and I kiss the stone where his body laid after the, after the cross, by the way, I could take you to that church, of the Holy Sepulchre, and it is gross, full of germs. Because one person after another, with long lines of people, you wait for a long time in line to get to the stone where they think that his body laid after the cross, and then they get down and they kiss it somehow to find favor with God. This is, the, this is the, what people are enslaved to. They are in bondage to it. All of this religion. Muslims, same thing. They've got Mecca, Medina. They've got the, all of the things that they do. Every pagan religion... Every cult has their elementary principles of religion. Do this, and God will find favor with you. Do this, do this, do this. Paul says, when you're little children, you may own everything, but you have no rights. You're, just no, you're no different than a slave because you are kept in bondage to these elementary principles of the world. So now, verse 4, here's the hinge. But when the fullness of the time had come... See, now the Father is introducing the Messiah to the world... When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. See, God knew back in the Garden of Eden, I'm going to send the seed of a woman, and the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. But it was how many years? Over 4,000 years or around 4,000 years until the seed finally came. People waited and waited and waited and waited until finally God said, this is the perfect time. All right? Rome, after 100 years of civil war, finally had peace under Caesar Augustus. Peace in the whole Roman Empire. They built a roadway system. Listen, I have been all across that region. I've been on the Via Ignatia. The Roman roads are better than our roads in Minnesota. Seriously. You can go on those roads that are 2,000 years old and less bumps and potholes than what we have, all right? They had a road system so the gospel could go everywhere. The Greeks had come upon the land previously and established a worldwide language, the Koine Greek, common Greek. So when all of this was set in place, God said, I'm going to send my son out of heaven. God himself, the second person of the Godhead, is going to come out of heaven. He's going to descend to earth, and he's going to be born of a virgin, born of a woman. Why? Here's why. In order for some, somebody to get me out of the prison that the law has put me in because of my guilt, I need a man to get me out. I need somebody who is like me. Take your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ruth. Find the book of Joshua, Judges, and after Judges, you'll find Ruth. God sent his son, born of a woman. Well, he had to be born of a woman. Because in order for us to be released from the curse, we needed somebody to step in our place. So in the Old Testament, there's a principle of a goel. You remember what a goel is? Go-el is a Hebrew word. It means kinsman redeemer. If somebody was in debt, their nearest relative could get them out of debt. They had to be a near relative, the closest relative. They had to be willing to pay the debt, and they had to have the ability to pay the debt. If they weren't a near kinsman, and they weren't willing, or they weren't able, you could never get redeemed. You could never get out of debt. We were in debt to God, imprisoned by the law. We needed a near kinsman to come to rescue us. He had to be willing and he had to be able to pay. Take a look at Ruth 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and he sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken. Notice that phrase, close relative. So Boaz's close relative comes. Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came alongside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, again, key phrase, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. Boaz says, but if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know for there is no one but you to redeem it and I am next after you. So the closest relative to Naomi has a choice to redeem it or not. And if that person doesn't want to, the very next one in line, by way of relative relation, is Boaz. So Boaz has a meeting and says, if you want to redeem it, go ahead. If not, I'm next. I'm next in line. So does that tell you um, he's a near kinsman? Absolutely. Now, jump down. And uh, look at verse 8. Therefore, Ruth 4.8, therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. He opted out. He now wants Boaz to buy it. So Boaz is now the closest relative to redeem. Is he willing? Look at this. He took off his sandal. In the culture, meaning I'm going to make an agreement with you. Taking off your sandal was a sign that we're going to make an agreement together. And so not only is Boaz the near kinsman, but he is willing. He's willing to redeem. And then verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was a limilex. Did he have the ability to pay? You bet he did. Boaz is the near kinsman redeemer. By the way, do you know where Boaz lived and where his fields were? In Bethlehem. And do you know where else was in Bethlehem? Migdal, Eder, all in the same area. So Boaz is a great, 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 uh, is the grandfather of Jesse and David. So he's all in that same line of Christ. Oh, it's it's an incredible story. Absolutely incredible. Boaz is a goel. He's a kinsman redeemer. He was able to purchase because he was willing, able, and he was the closest relative. We're locked up in prison, shut up by the law, condemned to die, found guilty, going to hell for all eternity. We needed a near kinsman, a close relative, So God, in his own time, Galatians 4 says, sent forth his son, born of a woman. Had to be fully man in order to pay for my sin. He had to be fully God. God sent him out of heaven because only an infinite God could pay my debt, which is an infinite debt, right? So an infinite God became full man, and he was willing to pay my sin, and he was able to. He had the price. His perfect blood. I'll show you that. Go back to Galatians 4. Let me show you that he had the ability to pay for our sin. This is a huge part about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Galatians chapter 4. Every phrase is incredible. But when the fullness of the time had come, the Roman Empire was at peace, the Greek language there, the the road system, everything um, was established and set. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That's our near kinsman redeemer. Born under the law. Jesus was born Under the law. But was he cursed because of that? The answer is no. When we're under the law, we're cursed because we sin. In Jesus, there is no sin. No curse on Jesus, even though he is under the law. So he can live perfectly under the law. And then when he dies, he dies in our place. The perfect one for the imperfect. The just for the unjust. So he's our closest relative. He's willing to die for us. And he has the ability to. He was born under the law. And here's why he came, verse 5. To redeem those, to buy us back, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, the adoption was, even though I was a child of the master, in the sense of this illustration, it's not until you become a full-grown adult, it's not until you put away the childish things and you become a full-grown adult, that you have any of the rights and privileges of sonship. So anybody who's not saved they're under the curse of the law. The moment you get saved, you immediately have all the rights and privileges of sonship, just like we I talked about this morning. So this is why Jesus came, to purchase us, to buy us back who are under the law. He got us out of the curse that we might become his children, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, "Abba, Father." There's one thing you could never do in the Old Testament, you could never have the intimacy like we do with the Holy Spirit living in us. They were fearful. The high priest got to go into the presence of God how many times a year? One day a year. Nobody else could. The entire nation had to go their whole lifetime without entering his presence. The high priest entered once, one day a year, on behalf of the whole nation. I don't think he was going in there going, Hey, Abba, Father, I think he was absolutely terrified. Is this sacrifice pure? Is it holy? Is it right? Us, the sacrifice is done. Jesus died. We go into His presence all the time, all day, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. We have access to the Father. We don't understand that privilege, but that's what God has done in making us His sons. So, if you're a child of God, this is what this is—the life we have. We have access to the Father. We have. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And verse 7. Therefore, here's the final part of this. You are no longer a slave, but a son. So we're out of the bondage of the slavery of the child, who though he is an heir of all things, he's just like a slave. But we've now reached the point where we've trusted Jesus. And so we're no longer a slave, but we're a son. And if we're a son, then we're an heir of God through Christ. Remember. All of the promises and the inheritance of Abraham goes to one person, the seed of of Galatians 3, and the seed is Jesus Christ. He gets it all. The only way that you can get any of the inheritance is if you're in Christ. You're not in Christ. You get no inheritance, nothing. So that's why faith in Jesus Christ is our message. We want more and more people to be in Christ and to receive all the blessings and the fullness of God. Now, we saw what life was like before. Children, even though we owned everything, we're still treated like a slave. We're under tutors and stewards and guardians. But now God sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And so we're sons of God with the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and we can cry out, Abba, Father. Now here's my my issue. Here's the responsibility we have. What will you do with it? You know what the church has done with it? The church has done this. Believe in Jesus Christ, but you have to get baptized. Get baptized. If you're not baptized, you don't get you can't be part of the family of God. All right? What a lie. It's an absolute lie. Baptism does nothing with my salvation. It is by faith alone in Jesus Christ, apart from any religion, apart from anything that I can do, any religious ritual. Is baptism important? Absolutely. As a believer, after you're saved, absolutely. Before you're saved, doesn't do anything. It means nothing. Salvation comes first, faith in Jesus Christ, and then you back it up with baptism and, other, and, and communion time. Sins are only forgiven in a relationship with Jesus Christ, no other way. And what has the church done? We have added, well, not we, but the church has added works to salvation, just like the Galatians did. You've got to do this, do this, do this, do this or you can't enjoy a relationship with God. So here's how Paul teaches us, verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, see, before I had a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, you served those which by nature are not gods. And isn't that true? Before I was saved, I was a worldly person. I served myself, my flesh, my lust. I, I didn't serve God. I served other things that were not God. Verse 9. But now, after you have known God, so after I'm saved, and then he turns it on its table by saying, or rather are known by God. So when I trusted in Jesus, I knew God. So after I have known God, but really God is the one that has always known me, chosen before the foundation of the world. It's kind of neat to see my free will, placing faith in Jesus Christ, and God's sovereign purpose is working right there, hand in hand. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? The Galatians were so willing to give up their freedom and their liberty in Christ to go back to the law, to go back to rules and regulations. How could they go back to the slavery that they just got out of? How could they get out of this? Why would they go back to the prison and the pedagogos? And why would they go back to all of these things that enslaved them? How did, ins- how did it enslave them? Verse 10. You observed days and months and seasons and years. They felt, if I kept these feasts and everything, just like God said, I will find favor with Him. Now, listen, God did establish certain things in the Old Testament as patterns to look forward to Jesus coming. But when Jesus came, those things were done away with. No more sacrifices needed to be offered. But what the Jewish people did, they, they, they took a law of God, And then they put 10 laws around it, so they don't break any one of those 10. They won't break God's one. Well, then they thought, I don't want to break these 10 around it, so I'm going to make more laws around it, so I don't break the 10, so I won't break the one. Pretty soon they have hundreds of laws that they become in bondage to, days and months and seasons and fast days and two fast days a week and three fast days a week and on and on. And they put themselves under this bondage when, by trusting in Jesus, they could be out from all of it. So verse 11. Paul's afraid. Paul's afraid for them, lest he has labored for you in vain. He says, listen, I'm concerned that if you walk away from grace through faith through grace, uh, grace through faith alone, you walk away from that, you're in bondage to sin, you're going to live like wicked sinners, and nobody in your communi- community is going to get the gospel. No one will get the truth. Paul says, I fear that I've labored in vain, and I'm going to have to start all over in South Galatia. All right, so we, we don't have a problem adding baptism or communion or anything to our salvation here, right? We don't add things to our gospel message here. But it is possible that we can begin to live a life like this. So let me explain as we close this last, and I've used this illustration a few times, and I'll keep using it throughout the book. My dad is here tonight. And I played Little League, right, Dad? Played Little League for Fred Olson's Mortuary. What a team to sponsor you. What a place to sponsor you. I'd go on the field, Fred Olson's Mortuary. Ah, look at that team. We, we played like we were sponsored. Dead. I was always right field, and man, if I wasn't sleeping out there, I was trying to catch a butterfly or something. But imagine this in those Little League days, days of mine. If I questioned my dad's love, if I wasn't sure, if I thought, you know what? I need to earn my dad's love. He doesn't love me, so I'm going to earn his love. And when I get to bat, I'm going to I'm gonna have to hit a home run. Because if I don't hit a home run, my dad will not be pleased with me. And so I'm concerned about I'm going to do a lot of works to make my dad happy. Now, um, in doing that, let's say that I don't, I don't accomplish it because I can't. I can't hit a home run. If I feel like my dad doesn't love me, then I feel he's going to come over and I'm going to be guilty, shamed. He's going to embarrass me. He's going to yell at me. He'll punish me. And I will seek to try harder next time. I'll run harder. I'll try to throw faster. I'll try to hit better. And I try, try, try. It's all my effort because I'm trying to gain his love and gain his favor. And it never works because when I don't run as fast and I don't throw as good and I don't hit as far, then I, I feel like my dad doesn't love me, and all I'm going to get is punishment and chastening and yelling and all of that, and I don't want that. So I'm going to try harder and harder and harder and harder. I can never gain his love that way, right? But listen, if you, if you question if God loves you, if you don't understand grace, then you're going to try, you know, in order for me to please God, I need to pray more. I need to witness more. If I don't witness more, um, then I'm going to feel guilty and shamed and and then I've got to read my Bible more. If I'm not reading it two hours a day instead of an hour and a half, then if I do read it two hours a day, God's really going to love me. And then if I, d- you know, that's the whole wrong mentality, isn't it? But picture this. I know my dad loves me without a doubt. Whether I'm good or bad, he's, I'm his son, and he loves me unconditionally. And so I get up to bat, and I'm not worried about my dad's love at all. You know what I want to do? Just because I love my dad so much I want to honor him, I'm going to swing as hard as I can, and I want to hit a home run. Not to gain my father's love, but to show him I love you and I want you to be so proud. I want you to be honored. And, and you know what? If I don't hit a home run, here's what I would expect. I would expect my dad to come over to me and say, hey, son, you didn't get a home run this time. But hold your bat this way. And then lean into it a little bit. You know what? I'll help you. And next time, you're going to hit a home run. And if I don't hit a home run the next time, what's he going to do? He's going to come alongside and help me and assist me. And he'll correct me and discipline me but it's good discipline, it's formative, it's helpful. And I didn't have to earn his love. I'm living for him out of grace and devotion. Now that's a whole different way of living, isn't it? We serve Jesus this week out of love and devotion for what he has done. He already loves me infinitely. He can't love me any more than he already does. There's nothing I can do that would cause him to love me more. So I rest in that, and now... Because he's so great and he has done so much for me, I love him so much, I'm going to go all out and serve him this week. I'm going to read my Bible, not to say it's a legalistic thing that will somehow he'll be more happy with me if I read longer, but I'm going to read to find out more about him. This week, I'm going to take verses. I'm going to try to figure out what is this all about and where is Jesus in this? And what does he want me to do? And I want to please him. This is all that matters to me is I want Jesus to be happy with me this week. I want him to, I mean, not ha- that's just legal. But I'm, I want him to be delighted in my sacrifice of praise. That type of thing. It's the whole mentality of it. We do the things we do because we live in grace. We, live, we do it because we love Jesus. All right? So there's a big difference in the way we think. So we're not worried about adding baptism to our gospel message. But I am concerned that... We could fall into living in a legalistic sense, all right? So just remember, God loves you infinitely. There's nothing you can do to earn his love. He loves because that's who he is. It's his grace. Father, thank you for this text that, again, just reminds us of what life was like before we were saved. We were in bondage. We were considered just slaves, even though though sons were masters of all things. Infant, childish sons, they didn't. They just had the same position as a slave. And so, Father, thank you that although at one time we were slaves to sin and slaves to our own lives, yet now, because you sent your son Jesus to us, we can live for you. And we can do the things that please you. We know, Father, that you can't love us more than you already do. There's nothing that we can do. But we want to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We want to do those things which please you and that you find acceptable just out of love and devotion for who you are and all that you've done. So thank you again that we can have the right attitude about service and ministry, and we can have great joy serving you. It is worthy. You are worthy to be served in such a great way. So encourage and empower the church this week to serve one another and to reach the last. And we are so thankful that we have these times together as a church to study your word, to learn more of Jesus. And we pray for his honor and glory. Amen. All right, now, um, just can I give you a warning for the end of chapter four? Paul changes his tone.